Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast dedicated to uncovering and discovering the stories, lessons, and insights to help you be the hero of your own story. This podcast is brought to you by Reality Smash, a transformational studio that empowers purpose-driven entrepreneurs with disruptive technologies like ChatGPT and virtual reality to generate more revenue and create greater impact. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Are you curious in investments in this current climate and conditions? Well, on today's podcast, I have Charles Hudson. He is a managing partner and founder of Precursor Ventures, an early stage venture capital firm focused on investing in the first institutional round of investments for the most promising software and hardware companies. Under his leadership, Precursor Ventures has raised four funds and has over 175 million under management, and he has invested in 250 companies and supported more than 400 founders, including the teams behind ClearCo, Juniper Square, The Athletic, Incredible Health, Carrot, and Pear Eyewear. Without any further delay, I'd like to welcome Charles. Hey. Hey. I'm excited, man. I'm, I'm excited to have you on. And... Uh, yeah, I'm uh, really looking forward to rapping with you. How you Me doing? Too. Me too. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing great. Doing great. Yeah. Here. Where, are you, where are you currently based out of right now? I'm in San Francisco. I'm actually like you can see, well, maybe not so much in the background, but I'm in our I'm in our office here in the city. Oh, it's been great. Nice. Have you noticed that there is a some sort of competitive advantage to being an investor inside San Francisco? I still think there's a lot of local network effects for being here. I bump into on my street. I bump into other investors, founders. I feel like it's hard to beat the information flow that happens mm -hmm. here. I tell everyone, like, you know, you can make you can make a movie anywhere. It happens to be a lot easier in New York or LA. And I think there's certain businesses that have geographic density. And I still think the Bay Area is the most dense place to be if you want to mm -hmm. uh, do tech investing or build a startup of your own. Not a requirement, but like obvious benefits to me. It's it's helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have a do you have a story at, at all by any chance of of any uh, what do you say synchronicities happening because you are in San Francisco? Oh, so so many. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll just tell you one that that yeah. happened yesterday. Yesterday, I was going to a meeting down the street uh, from my office. I stopped to grab a cup of coffee and I bumped into somebody that I know from three startups ago who I hadn't seen in forever, who happened to be meeting another friend of mine. I didn't even realize still that the two of them were friends. And this person was starting a new company and was like, oh, I've been meaning to reach out to you about this new startup. I was going to email you, but like, since you're here, do you have five minutes? I can give you like the quick version. I was like, well, I have something else to go to in like exactly five minutes. So like, let's get the quick version out. And who knows how long it would have taken him to eventually get around to emailing me and then for me to find a time to meet with them. And so... It's that kind of that like that happened yesterday. It's just those kind of things that happen. It's, it's that ecosystem of people doing, especially things you're interested in, which is yeah. this tech tech investment startup stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was it was funny. I was looking at. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Chat GPT, of course. Uh, and I went to go look at Google Trends, and mm -hmm. so Google Trends shows where things spike in terms of keywords, and then it you know it showed first like Washington was really big. For ChatGPT and then California, yep. and then you go to you go to San Francisco. It was at like a hundred percent. Oh, um, I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah. What's your what's your hot take on that? Uh, I think the technology is really interesting. I think it has the potential to have a gigantic impact. When I look at it, though, um, I keep asking myself, who do I think is going to capture the value in this innovation? And right now. If you ask me, I would say it seems like OpenAI and MidJourney and a handful of companies are going to capture a lot of the value in generative AI. The reason I'm a little, I haven't made a bunch of investments on the startup side is I, I have two note-taking tools that I use, Notion and Mem, both of which already have an embedded AI smart writer. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, well, if this becomes the capability that's embedded in lots of other applications, can you really build big applications? applications around the application of this technology that's something that everybody can can use mm. and so i think in the same way with web3 we just said let's come up with our own point of view about this and like meet some companies and try to figure out what makes sense to us before we deploy capital i'm kind of taking the same approach here i mean it's clear to me that what open ai is doing is, is really working and they're a leader and i'm not i'm not sure what other surface area 
there is that's available to startups. Got it. So the point is, it's going to be so ubiquitous so quickly that if anybody can do it and it's going to be as common as Google, then where's the real competitive advantage for a startup to really come into the space yeah. and capitalize? What kind of that kind of comes around the concept of like, what's the moat? Yeah. And I, and I think like, you know, we make a lot of investments where ironically the moat only becomes um, well understood after the fact. Mm. Um, you know, I think with this whole moat conversation, I think everybody wants it to be some neat and tidy network effects or technical differentiation. We have a bunch of companies where the moat is like, this is just a very hard business to run at scale. And there's like a hundred little processes that you have to get right in order to deliver an amazing customer experience. And the only way to figure those things out um, is by doing. So sometimes I'm like, oh, the mode is that this is an operationally complex and difficult business to pull off. And like, once you get to the point of being able to pull it off, it's only because you've mastered so many little things along the way. Got it. Yeah, so then you, so is that not one of the things that you look for? I know you have, I believe there's like six core pieces of your investment mm -hmm. form of what you look for. When you're doing that, when you're making this kind of internal decision-making processes and you go to meet a startup or someone that might be looking for capital you're yeah. considering to invest, what, what are the things that are running through your head that you're ticking off? I think the big thing I'm trying to figure out is like, is this a business that I think has good long-term potential? And sometimes I, I meet companies and I'm like, wow, this feels like they're exploiting a moment in time. They're like, oh, is it a feature or is it a company? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. There are lots of things that I thought were a feature that turned out to be a whole company. A lot of people said Instagram was just filters. It turned out it was actually a lot more than filters in the end. But I always ask myself, like, does this person have a plan for building an enduring company? And do I agree with that plan? A lot of times they say, like, I don't think this person has a plan for building an enduring company, or I think the innovation that they're pioneering, it feels like it's transient. And like, once everyone catches up, then what? And then I'm looking for founders. I think there's this like blend of being like ambitious enough to think you succeed and being naive enough to not realize like how brutal <laughs> it is to do startups. And so you need some combination. Not every founder we back has those two things in the same balance, but yeah. I believe you need, you need a healthy dose of both. Yeah, it's almost like you have to believe that the the tunnel, uh, going through the tunnel, that it's only three feet deep, and you got to go in with the enthusiasm of that, and then right. and then find that sustainability to keep going. Just know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm going to keep going. It's, it's true. No, it's <laughs> it's really true. And um, we've been consistently pleasantly surprised mm -hmm. by um, the tenacity of the people we've backed and their ability to find the big opportunity. Mm. How has that worked in terms of when you're investing, there's a relationship that you now form because you have a financial investment into them. And what is your thesis or your understanding with working with founders? Because it's not always, it's not rarely a straight line. What do you do? Do you, Is it coaching? Is it guidance? Do you just kind of let them run into the darkness? Or what does that relationship look like? Um, I think the way I think about it is there are a couple of principles we have. One is that, um, you know, we invest in adults who are capable people. Like they, they don't, they're not children. Like they're adults. They're fully formed humans. They, they can figure these things out. And our job is to be, is to give them leverage in areas where we maybe know more than they do, which is usually fundraising or there's some situations I, I've seen them a hundred times, founders never seen them before. I think the other principle is like, I think our job is to be guardrails. What I mean by that is like most of the decisions that a founder needs to make, they need to own them and make them themselves. If they want our input and consultation, great, but, but they're the owner and we should like challenge them and support them in making a good decision, but ultimately it's their decision. But there's a few things, if you do them, you might kill the company. And that's where I think we need to be guardrails. And that's usually like a dramatic pivot. We should probably talk before you decide to make a dramatic pivot. We'll probably support you in doing so. But those are one of those things that can blow a hole in the company. Really expensive, big hires, co-founder splits, things that might be illegal that founders don't realize are illegal. Like, <laughs> like there's a handful of things where I think our job is to be guardrails. But honestly... You know, we invest in people, a lot of whom are doing it for the first time yeah. as CEO. And my belief is that being CEO 
and founder is a unique job. Nothing prepares, nothing fully prepares you for it than doing it. And it's better to let people figure it out than to do everything for them. Mm. It's like our view is kind of like, if the person can't hire, we have to help them figure out how to hire because they're going to be hiring people for the rest of the company for as long as it lives. And so like us just like parachuting in and doing it for you, it doesn't allow you to grow. So I think personal, this may be a little woo-woo, but I think starting a company, it's a big personal growth journey for a lot of people. And I think you have to go on that journey and like, we're here to support you as a partner, but like sometimes you will walk, you'll feel like you're walking alone, but we're watching. And in other cases, it'll feel like we're walking right next to you. That's beautiful. Yeah. I heard a saying one time, it was a previous podcast guest who said, your business is like a microcosm of your nervous system. Like your business can only grow as much as you do and as much as you allow. And mm -hmm. so understanding how do, how do, is there ways that you've seen startup founders take some sort of transformational shifts or do looking inwards yeah. where they, they've needed to shift who they are. And do you have anything that you can say oh, around yeah. that way? I mean, we have a somewhat similar saying, which is I tell people all the time, like your startup will amplify all the idiosyncrasies about your personality and who you are. So I say in many cases, if you see a problem in your startup, it's probably a problem you have in your own life. Mm. Um, they are this big sort of like mirror. So I tell people all the time, like the better you understand yourself and your own tendencies and your beliefs, the better you will understand how those things manifest themselves in your startup. And so for a lot of our startup founders, they end up at some point working with a coach or some kind of advisor to help them. And some of them have a coach and a therapist because I think they're really two different skill sets. But I think a lot of, to your point, a lot of what you have to do in a startup is you have to constantly do things you've never done before. And you have to do them very well with little practice. So you've never raised a seed round before. Well, if you want your company to get funded, you have to go figure out how to raise a seed round. Great, you raise a seed round. Now we have to go raise a series A. You never raised a series A before, but you've raised some money. Oh, but a series A is different. Well, now you have to go figure out how to raise a series A. Hiring, firing, strategy shifts, all of these things are oftentimes new for founders. And so what I tell them is it's helpful, A, to have like a sounding board for you personally, but B, it's also good to have friends who are founders who've gone on this journey before, who are maybe one or two steps ahead of you, not because you should do exactly what they did or because your journey will be exactly the same, but those people understand the context that you operate in. And we work with a lot of first-time founders who come back to me and say, well, I told my parents what I do and they don't get it. And I told my friend who works at Google, he doesn't get it. I'm like, of course not. Those people don't understand the context of your, your life. You need founder friends. Yeah. You need a founder community. And part of what we try to provide for our portfolio companies is a true founder community that they can plug into where they can have real deep, meaningful, open conversations with people who are going through the same things that they are. That's beautiful. The, I like the uh, community aspect of having a couple pieces. You have these founder friends that are getting together where they, they share some sort of local kombuchas together and mm -hmm. talk about life. And then the, you talked about the difference between the, I don't want to say you, you have this parental role, but your goal is kind of let them be wild, but don't let them kill themselves. Yeah. Which is kind of a good parental kind of role. Mm -hmm. And then you said there's a difference between a therapist and a coach that would help mm -hmm. them along the way. What areas, how did each one of them in different ways support the founder? Yeah, look, I think, you know, we, first of all, being a founder of a tech company is an incredibly stressful job. I found sometimes the things you have to do as a founder create mental health challenges and like having somebody who's a skilled, I am not like an MFT. I am not trained. I'm not a trained or licensed therapist in any way, shape or form. Having someone who, who's professionally trained who can help you think through these issues is important. Also, I find sometimes people have unresolved issues. I'll give you a really good example, Dylan. I have learned a lot of founders that we've worked with have unresolved issues about their relationship to money in their personal life. And those things manifest themselves in the way that they operate their startup and when they think about budgeting and spending and sometimes I'm like hey I think you have like a money issue from your personal life that is like showing up in the startup and you should explore that to me that is the domain of therapy and like yeah. understanding yourself and just becoming more self-aware coaching I think about is more about managerial effectiveness mm. and you know I find self-aware people tend to make better managers on average 
they're they're just more in tune with who they are. They're more in tune with their impact on others. They're more in tune with how their actions are received by others, how people are feeling. Um, you can teach people a lot of that, I think. I think the coaching thing is about, hey, you're leading a group of 20 people. How do you need to communicate? Or how do you need to make decisions? Or how do you need to find when to delegate, when to take control? Those, to me, are like managerial effectiveness things. Where I think I can actually help people with some of those things because we deal with a lot of managerial situations at Precursor. So some people have both. Some people have only one. Mm. Um, but I think it's really hard to do a startup truly by yourself without a support ecosystem of some sort. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so it sounds like from the therapist's point of view, the therapist helps with the trauma and self-needs and internal reflections while the coach is more external action taking social connections collaborations team communities that kind of stuff yeah yeah interesting yeah that's beautiful and for yourself how has like could you walk me through a bit of your journey from starting out that brought you into the tech space and kind of the how you've evolved along the way oh man uh i'll try not to make it too long but um (laughs) i mean like i i went to school at stanford i did not study computer science I think I took one kind of computer science class. I was an econ and Spanish major. I was pretty sure I wanted to go into the world of business. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about tech. I'm from Michigan originally. Like tech was not a big part of like my, my upbringing. With one exception, one of the most prominent alums from my high school was one of the founders of Sun Microsystems. So we had a computer science lab. We had programming classes when I was in High school, I just didn't think that that was a career. I'm like, this is a class you take just like English or music or math. You take a computer class. Um, and I got to Stanford. I'm like, oh, these people are really into this technology thing. Like, this, it's a big deal. And I graduated right into the tail end of Web 1.0. And the economist in me said, wow, the internet seems to be very good at reducing communication and transaction costs uh, between parties. And this could be maybe like the steam engine railroad type innovation of my lifetime. And as excited as I am to be an investment banker or a management consultant, I think I'm going to bet on this internet thing. And so I worked for the CIA's venture capital group, which ended up finding that job through another internship I had where I met somebody who knew them. So I did that for a few years. It was really fun. Then went back See, the, the CIA, that sounds like there's some interesting investments in that space. It was a... Uh, the CIA had all of the same technology challenges of any very large distributed organization. Yeah. So I feel uh-huh. honored that they they trusted us to help them wow. address some of their technology challenges and opportunities, but it was really fun, really fun job. And then I realized like three and a half years as a junior VC, I knew a little bit about a lot of things, but I didn't actually know how to do anything. And if you dropped me into a company, there was like probably no job that would have been appropriate to, to take. So I said, all right, I'm going to go try my hand at business school and see if I can come out of business school with a clear idea of what I want to do. And came out and worked as a product manager for six months and realized this is a very hard job. I respect people who are great at it. I don't think this is what I'm meant to do. And then I ended up at Google um, for about a year and a half doing kind of partnerships and business development work. That felt more natural to me. And then I said, I really want to try startups. I haven't done this I mean, the first company I went to out of business school was like a 250-person company. It was, I would describe it as a reasonably mature private company, not really a startup per se. And so I went to this um, startup online virtual worlds company that was really small as part of a two-person sales and BD team. And I was like, startups are my thing. I am in the right, I'm in the right role at the right stage company. This is where I want to be. And then did a couple startups in really in the games space. What is what? What about startups make it the right fit for you? Um, I just loved the freedom, and I loved the fact that I could go to my CEO in the morning with an idea, and there was a chance by the end of the day, like we might have like built something or <laughs> launched something. Yeah, and I just loved the like freedom and like the autonomy and. I didn't find the risk. I didn't, I like, I never felt like startups were risky. I'm like, they're kind of risky, but like we have all the control as the team. Like we can make it happen and we can like remove the things that make this company risky. 
And so that was like a, I don't know, like a really awesome experience. And like, I loved my time at Google, but I was like, wow, there's so many smart people here at Google. Like, I don't know. I don't know that I'm like any smarter than they are. Um, and so I felt like though at startups, there was just more room to run. And I was just really, 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 really happy with mm. the opportunity to do that. It just, it meant so much to me to feel like trusted by people um, to solve problems. They're like, you have to solve it. Like, we don't actually know the answer. This is not some like um, Socratic exercise. Like you actually have to figure it out. And I just, I love that about startup life. Got it. And then, so you went from the startup life into the game space and that, that felt even better. You're like, okay, this is even more so. And I was working in games at a time when the games business was going through a pretty big transition. It was when free-to-play games were really starting to happen in, in the United States. And, like, they weren't well understood in the U.S., but they were super well understood in Asia. And so that made for, like, some really interesting, like, learning opportunities. And I don't know. Just, I just have always felt like I wanted to be where the innovation was happening, where the action was. Where do you feel like it's currently happening now these days? Um, it's a really good question. Um I think there's a lot of innovation that's happening internationally as yeah, I think um, some of the technology innovations in the United States are being exported to other countries, but being implemented in new ways. And it's cool to me to see entrepreneurship in technology just blossoming in Latin America and in, in Africa in particular. Mm -hmm. I think there was a lot, of, it was and still is a lot of energy and enthusiasm around crypto and Web3. I just think without this speculative financial piece, it feels like the energy is different. But for the people I know who are true believers, they're as committed as ever. And I think the generative AI, chat GPT, mm. mid-journey stuff is also interesting. And I think it's one of those things where you're just like, wow, like you play with chat G GPT, you're like, is this the future of search? Is this the future of writing? Could be, maybe not, who knows? But I think there's a lot of energy there because, you know, I think open questions attract energy. And those are areas where I think it feels like there's energy and the opportunity to build something new. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And also that kind of reminds me of the, the gaming term I learned from uh, Amy Jo Kim, because I think we met uh, part of the that uh, yeah. uh, going through her design course. Uh, she, I think she called it little in uh, big out. Yep. In terms of gaming terminology. So mm -hmm. you, you type in, you know, write me a thesis and then it, it and then out pops it. And so you can it's like the, it's like hitting the tip of the domino. Right. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing falls down around you. And I feel it's one of the gamification feels that I get when I play with chat GPT. It's pretty. I mean, I use it a lot yeah. um, to get my creative. And like, I don't really publish the stuff that it produces, but I find sometimes I'm like a little stuck and I'm like, OK, I have to write this thing. And I find that like, it will get me going. I'm like, okay, like, all right, here's four or five treatments that they generated. Okay, I've got some ideas about what I want to write now that I've seen what the machine has produced. I'm not going to reuse any of this output, yeah. but it's sort of helped my brain get started. I, I could see that. And it wasn't until I started playing with it myself that I realized how much AI I actually use on like a day-to-day -day <laughs> of, of, I was like, you know, speaking into my phone to translate some things and I'd, I'd type that in and then I'd drag everything in the Descript and then I'd yep. video edit things around and then output that. And I was just like, like there's a lot of these little micro slices of AI that, you know, it's not necessarily general, but I feel like you're starting to stitch them all together and it starts to be something that's a greater sum of the parts. Have you seen things where people have stacked these types of technologies together in a way that is unique and valuable? Oh, I've got a couple friends in venture who've done some really clever stuff with the with Zapier plus Gmail plus OpenAPI plus their CRM systems and they've stitched it together to do some really cool, uh, I'm honestly jealous, like some really cool <laughs> automations yeah. uh, for their workflow. And um, that's my, that's where I'm like particularly interested in seeing how does this stuff, so we've been investing in AI what I call applied AI companies for the last five years, which is like, you know, I'm not smart enough to evaluate an AI model or someone who's building like tooling, but I'm like, Hey, if you can find an application, like we have an investment in a company called rad AI that helps radiologists be more efficient and effective with, with the outputs of their radiology readings, not trying to replace radiologists, trying to make them more effective. 
And I was like, oh, this makes sense to me. This is like a clear application where using AI can really, really help. Yeah. So I'm going to look out for companies like that. Yeah, especially in areas of uh, med tech. I mean, there's always, you know, huge opportunities. I know uh, anytime you do things that, are, you know, I know with virtual reality, because I have more experience in that space as well, it's anything's rare, risky, dangerous, difficult, you know, which is everything medical, you know, yes. has, has huge opportunities. So I can, I can absolutely see that. And so it's, it's actually turning so science into applied science. How can you take mm -hmm. this technology and turn it into something that's a useful product? Because sometimes people have, look at my cool widget but there's no actual use case for it. Yeah. Do you have a litmus test to kind of figure out whether or not this thing is valid or not valid for a certain market space? So we don't do a lot of, I, I think if it requires a deep understanding of science, I just assume I'm not smart enough to really evaluate <laughs> it. So like we, we take those off the table. Yeah. And then there's other things, like I'll give you like a more practical example. Sure. We met a bunch of like self-driving truck and car companies earlier in precursor. And I was like, I badly want these things to exist, but I think we're being too optimistic on the timetable mm. and time is not the friend of most startups. So we ended up not investing in a bunch of those companies really because I felt like the more we learned, the more I felt like, well, the real dream scenario is probably farther off than we think. And it's unclear to me if the intermediate endpoints are that interesting. And I was like, gosh, I really want a self-driving car. And I really want self-driving trucks on the freeway. But me wanting it has no bearing on how long it's going to take technically to happen. We just felt like the timetable we think it's going to take is much longer than the optimists are saying. And so we really set that market out. And and with the benefit of hindsight, I'm, I'm glad we did. Mm -hmm. um, on the way up, it didn't feel great watching these companies raise all this money and I was like, ugh, maybe we made a huge mistake. Um, and same thing with Web3. There are a bunch of things about Web3. I'm like, these things don't make sense to me yet. Once they begin to make sense to me, we will be more aggressive in investing. Until then, we'll let other people make that money. And um, again, I'm glad we, we waited until things made sense for us to jump in. Yeah, it's it seems to be this combination of mitigating the risk you know, creating that psychological safety to, to jump forward and understand mm -hmm. enough, but then also enough to, but also saying there's going to be a gap here in, in what currently is versus what can be and how short is that gap? What does that really yeah. look like? And because we're mostly a pre-seed investor, for us, the timing really does matter. Mm -hmm. We don't have an infinite window. I'm like, I kind of need the market dynamics have to come together in sort of two to three years for people in most cases to be able to commercialize whatever it is that they're building. And if it doesn't happen on that time frame, company might not be around to take advantage of, of the innovation. Yeah. Could you just, for anybody that's listening, explain what you mean by pre-seed and what that looks like? Sure. Kind of um, we take a pretty specific view. So for us, a pre-seed round is, for our own internal purposes, so we have different definitions. It's a round of a million dollars or less for a company that is, um, somewhere between no product market fit and very, very early glimmers of product market fit and usually little to no traction. So I think we're basically investing kind of at idea stage companies. And the reason we think the million dollars is an important threshold is to me, a pre-seed round is about finding product market fit and building something. It's not about building a company. A seed round's about like, hey, we've got a nugget of an idea that's working here. Can we now scale this idea into a company? We've got to hire some people and put more structure in place. That's something you do with the seed round. For me, pre-seed is really about concept idea validation. Mm, okay. That makes sense. And that also makes sense why uh, I immediately think of Amy Jo Kim <laughs> and, and validating ideas and making sure things land well and you know designing on paper versus expensive uh, uh, yep. designs. I've, I have a, I've a you know, I've, I build high-end technology, so I build virtual reality and I do some AI work, but uh, validating an idea uh, on a piece of paper is so much more cost-effective than building an entire application out and then testing the marketplace not to have it land and then go, oh, okay, well, that was an expensive lesson. Go back to we, the drawing board. And we, we have those. We, we have some of those. Still. We have some people where I'm just sort of like, hey, I don't, you know, I always ask people, what do you think the MVP for this product looks like? Like, what is the 
skinniest but useful version of this product we could build and test things out. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I tell people there's too much M in the MVP. Like it's got to be representative of what um, we're building. And in other cases, I'm just like, look, there's a really simple hacky way to get to an answer here. So it's a balance. And then the with you, the picking, what's the the desire to work with such an early stage versus more guarantees, more certainty? What's that about? Um, I think part of being an investor is figuring out how your own brain works and like what gets you excited. I have a bunch of friends who do growth stage investments and they spend all day in Excel and they love it. They love looking at financial models. They love sensitivity analysis, they love all. And I'm like, I do not love those things. And I'm glad we have people who do. What I realized is like, my basic belief is that most of the companies I found that were interesting as an investor were interesting pre-traction, pre-product market fit. Like I didn't need, I didn't feel the need to see more. So I'm like, well, if I'm comfortable picking companies at that stage and we've had some success in doing so, why shouldn't I just continue to do that? And it turns out it's a relatively, in the world of institutional venture capital, there aren't that many people who either want to or enjoy picking companies at the stage where we do, but I really like it. Mm. And I think part of being a, a successful investor is finding a lane where you're happy, but where you also can win. It's like, I don't want to compete against my spreadsheet friends. Like they're better at spreadsheets <laughs> than I am and they enjoy them more. I'm like, but the underwriting people and doing all that work from scratch, that part, I, I really enjoy. I like doing that. So maybe I should just do that. Mm. So sometimes, you know, kind of, you, know, you do this job long enough and you start to really realize what you like. Yeah. Yeah. And so for you, it's that early stage, one or two founders, that freedom, is it, is it, and when you talk about, about what you like about it, is, is there, is it an excitement issue? Is it, is it, is it going into the unknown or what is it? What, what do you get from, from working with those early stage founders? It's a very, very awesome and like thoughtful question. I think what I've realized is and I think this is something I went through as a first time founder. I think the market for venture is like so heavily skewed towards repeat people or people that are like de-risked that we sort of lost our way in funding people that don't fit that pattern. And I think what I realized as a founder myself was like, well, lots of people could be a good founder if they were given the chance. Just very few people get the opportunity. I also realized like some of the best founders I'd invested in in my old my old firm at Uncork, they they weren't like two degrees from Stanford, four years at Google, YC grads. They were just really smart people who'd really thought about the problem they were trying to solve. And it turned out when you put them in a situation where they had to recruit and hire people and had to set strategy, like they they grew into it and they, they really took to the work. And I was like, you know, the thing I like about the early stage is like most of the people we bet on, maybe even their old manager didn't think they would be a founder. Or like maybe no one's ever told no one's ever told or encouraged them to go in this direction. And I meet them and I'm like, oh, this person totally has the it that we're looking for. They just need the opportunity and they need the circumstances that will pull those things out of them. Mm. And so I like it just more from like a human development, human capital. Like I think it's fun to see people achieve things. And like, I don't know, I'm done building companies myself. So like, I enjoy vicariously like, like watching these people that we meet them and, you know, I always tease them like, do you remember how bad you were at this thing when we first, oh God, I was terrible at product strategy when you met me, like we couldn't even get ship a product. And now they're like a highly regarded product person or a CEO who really like leans into the, the job and becomes great. I, I don't know, I find that very rewarding mm. to be a small part of those people's professional journeys. Mm. That celebration along the way it's almost yeah. like the it sounds like to me a bit of uh investment activism you know sub yeah. supporting people along the way and then celebrating that do you have a moment in time any any things that you can reflect on that 
you've been able to, you know, bet on uh, an uncommon person and then they've been able to succeed in that celebration moment? Oh, we've got tons of them. I mean, like, I don't know. I would say, like, I'm really proud of the guys at The Athletic. I mean, like, Adam and Alex did a great job building and scaling that business. And they raised money at a time where most people thought, like, you couldn't do anything interesting in journalism. And I was like, I disagree. Um, and, you know, they they just, I mean, they they built what I think is probably the most prominent, until the New York Times acquired the most prominent independent sports media platform in the country and wow. and will soon be the world someday and so i don't know like they're just two really smart guys with a great idea and they built a great team around them i've got others that are like approaching big milestones i won't i won't jinx them by, by saying like, <laughs> call them out um, anytime but there's lots of other little milestones you know the, the person who gets their series a done who wasn't sure yeah they were gonna make it um, the person who, you know, we've got a couple of, of founders who are running, you know, 150, 200 person companies. And I asked them, did you ever think you'd run a company this large? They're like, never. Mm. Wow. What do you do when you're in conflict within, with a founder, someone that they, they want to go left and you want to go right? And this is one of those big decisions. I think one of the fears that some yeah. founders have is that, oh, if I take on a desk or whatever, um, there's horror stories of getting kicked out of their own company and getting mm -hmm. replaced and things like that. But how do you handle that conflict? What does that look like? Um, we, we've been a part of removing CEOs before. It's very, very rare. I mean, if you think about the stage where we invest, yeah. who's gonna come join a company <laughs> With like no money and no fine. <laughs> we're one. Of, we're one of three. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty tough self. Yeah, I think what I would say in general is, we don't take that many board seats. So in most cases, like, there's not even like a structural reason that people have to listen to us. Mm -hmm. But we'll put that aside. Yeah, I think in general, venture is about influence, not control. I don't have really the illusion that I have control over what these founders will do, or I don't really have, you know, own enough of the companies that I can block decisions. Even if I could, I don't, I wouldn't want it to come to that. In general, like my job is to make the strongest, best argument I can from my point of view. And hope, and, and it's not hope that they listen to me. It's hope that they make the right decision. It'd be one thing if I was always right. Dylan. If I was right all the time, I would just say, just listen to me because I'm never wrong. That is like simply not true. <laughs> but I do think it's my job to like make sure that founders think about all of the key points and the trade-offs and the costs of both action and inaction for a decision. As you can imagine, in Q4, you know, recently we've talked to a lot of founders just about this question of like, well, what's the right burn rate in this new economic environment? In many cases, I've had a point of view that was a number that was much lower than that founder was prepared to go. And so instead of saying, like, you will get the burn rate down to X, I've been like, here's what you get by getting the burn rate down to you. You get 24 months of runway. You have a simpler company to operate. You still have enough people to build stuff, but not as many as you have today. But you get the gift of time. Or you could keep the, or you could lower the burn rate to a number that's higher than I'm suggesting and lower than the current. Have more people, have more punching power. But it's like my experience has been in the end, everybody always wishes they had more time. Yeah. And they go, "Gosh, I wish we hadn't brought on that consultant. Or I guess we hadn't. I wish we hadn't signed that deal." Like, there's always a couple things you look back on and say, "Gosh, we we could have done. We probably could have done more with the money." And I'm just like, I don't want any of you, the founders in our portfolio, to ever have that feeling of getting close to the end and feeling like we didn't do a good job with the money. We could have done a lot more. Yeah. That, I mean, it seems like the, the real true commodity in this world isn't money. It's time. And if, yep. you, had more, if you had more time, which you know, brings back to the whole, uh, you know, why I think everyone's fascinated with the whole chat, GPT and all that stuff is that it, it, it's the, it's a great time saver to a degree. Mm -hmm. Oh Yeah. TikTok, it's a it's only sixty seconds. You just keep swiping. You might do it for three hours straight, but it's only sixty seconds. That's right. That's how they you get know? you. 
the perceived value of time mm -hmm. in this in this in this area so and it sounds like and i don't know if i'm uh inferring this incorrectly but it sounds like a lot of things like you you don't have a desire to build but you have a desire to celebrate and instead of you focusing all your energy and, and effort on building your own one company instead you're empowering it sounds like 250 or so different companies along the yep. way to be able to, to have all these little micro celebrations and surrounded with the energy without mm -hmm. the actual and so it's more of like a uh your your TikTok swiping your companies yeah and <laughs> how you doing how you doing? Yep. <laughs> we talk to them we talk to them a lot it's a it's a i probably talk to 40 to 45 of our portfolio companies a week yeah so it's a significant chunk of my day but I don't know how else, you know, these, I tell my investors all the time, these companies are run by human beings. Yeah. So if you want to understand the company, you have to understand the human being who's running it. And the better we understand the human being, their motivations, fears, desires, hopes, dreams, uh, shortcomings, strengths, weaknesses, the better we can advise them on how to run the company. Yeah. And also the more satisfying, sorry, my chair is being weird. Sorry, the more satisfying the experience of working with them is. Mm. Like if I was just processing, you know, if I was just getting a bunch of written updates from people and logging them in a database, it'd be kind of boring. The fun part for me is like the people and getting to know these founders and understanding why did this one person start this company and like what was their insight and like why does it matter so much to them? And what are they doing that's getting in the way of them being even more successful? That's beautiful. And you're talking about in order to understand the company, you have to understand the individual. And with that, I, what's coming to mind for me is rituals. Like mm -hmm. you talk, you say about talking to 40 to 50 of them. What other rituals do you have to really create that deep seated connection with your community? We try to get people together in person. Mm -hmm. I've also learned that I'm like a decent, but not amazing predictor of what people are going to end up being friends with each other. Um, it's pretty easy to guess on the professional level. Oh, you're both building e-commerce marketplaces. But oftentimes they're just like, oh, like me and this person went to college together. And I'm like, I didn't even know that. Or me and this person have a passion for the same television show or the same activity. So I feel like getting our founder group together more often, it just creates more opportunities for um, serendipitous discovery of, of shared interests. We also do a fair amount of, uh, we, we have this like a uh, peer mentorship program that we run mm -hmm. where we put founders in little groups of six to eight founders for a six month period of time with the facilitator, which is really designed to give them a little mini network of trust. Yeah, it's, I can see that it, it, you have these loose connections with all these different ones and then you can make tighter bonds with smaller groups. And so you have yep. the ability to. Okay. And, and truthfully, like they outgrow us. This mm -hmm. is the other piece. Like, you know, we work closely with a lot of these companies for two, maybe three years. At which point they're sort of like, hey, our company's more mature. We have more resources. Like we sort of don't need you as much. <laughs> <laughs> they move out of the house. Is that what they do? It's, it's uh, usually, uh, it's sad, but it's necessary to, to yeah. create space for for new gummies, but you know, it is, it is always a little sad when we have a founding team that we've gotten to know really well and spent a lot of time with and that phase of the relationship comes to an end and things transition. It is sad. As they're progressing. And so you've seen so many startups come through your space. You, what is the, the non-obvious transition that they make? What's the thing that happens that causes them to shift from being pre-seed or seed or out the door that they don't always predict that? Sometimes like something happens in the external environment mm -hmm. that creates an opportunity that wasn't there before. Um, like we have a company that's doing some interesting work in and around, I'm using generative AI for customer support. That was doing something very different before. Um, same thing, we had some companies when crypto was starting to ramp that dropped what they were doing and pivoted into crypto. And for most of them, it worked out pretty well. Um, I think the big thing, though, is 
as companies find product market fit, this happens all the time. It's like, I think we have product market fit. I'm like, I'm not sure. I don't think you do. No, no, no. I think it's working. I'm like, yeah, but you're working really hard. You're, you're like pushing a rock up the hill. It's going up the hill. And then when they really hit it, they're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea how far away we were from product market fit when I thought we had it the first time. Now that we really have it, they're like, I'm staying up till midnight every day, just like trying to respond to orders. Mm -hmm. It's not like anxiety driven, like I'm up late at night because I don't want my startup to fail because I didn't work hard enough. They're like, no, no, I'm, I'm up responding to orders or dealing with customer stuff. And I think that moment when the light bulb goes on and goes, oh, we've really cracked the code here. We really found it. Totally different story. Mm, it's, it's, it's pushing the boulder up the hill versus running down the hill because the boulder's chasing you. You yeah. got it. Yeah. Got it. Well said. I love that. I love that. And for all of this that you've done in the space, right? You've, you've um, started, I think, four different funds. You've done very well in the space. You're obviously not going back in the startup land. You're... Oh. You're, you're in this pre-seed space. What is your holy grail? Like, what is the thing? Like, why do you do all this that you do? It's a good question. I ask myself that all the time. Um, I don't know. I, I think I was put on earth to help people. And I think different people help different people in different ways. For some people, it's emotional. For some people, you know, it's through their, their own work. For me, I think, I don't know, I was put here to like, help people who I think deserve an opportunity get one, not to prove a point, but just because for whatever reason, like those people, I was talking to my investors, she's like, well, how do you find these? I'm like, they just naturally are my people. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not hard for me to find them. It's not hard for me to assess them. It's not hard for me to get comfortable providing them with capital. They are really the people I think I was like put here to help. And like, we have the fortune of being able to raise money and we basically turn around and give that money by an investment to people that we think are really talented. I don't know. Like, I can't think of anything else I'd rather do than what I do. Oh, just, it's create an opportunity. Mm -hmm. this. And that's the best way that the best way that you know how, and the best way that you've you've been able to have an impact. Yeah. Yeah. So, with creating this opportunity. The Holy Grail is to really provide this opportunity and, and, and help where you can help. For you, what's the dragon? Like, what's the thing that's really difficult for you to overcome that you might need to transcend who you are to get to where you want to go? Oh, there's so many challenges. I mean, like, one of the big ones is we're a one-partner firm. There is some maximum throughput. I'm always trying to push the envelope. But there is some maximum amount of throughput that um, our firm can handle under its current configuration. It's largely governed by me. I have not been able to replicate myself either like virtually or like by finding somebody who has my same sensibilities for investing. I, I hope that we have people on the team who as they develop and mature as investors will fill that role. But like, you know, that's the thing, like this thing might not last beyond me. And that's, I think, you know, I think every solo uh, founder, every solo general partner who starts a venture firm has to like ask themselves, like, am I building a forever institution or am I building something that like may have a finite lifetime? And like, I don't know. I don't have to, fortunately, I don't have to have an answer for that today, yeah. but I don't, I don't have an answer for that yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's just, it's still undecided, but it's just you in terms of the, what are you, if if you want to scale, you know, then it's a different it's a different yeah different beast. I mean, and we totally. we don't have when we haven't gotten in the full cloning yet. We're working yeah. on it. I think they got the dolly with the sheep or something back in yeah. the day, but just not quite there. Yeah, they're working on it. They working on it. I actually have a a, a a friend of mine who's fairly fairly well off, and he actually ended up cloning his dog because uh, the dog died. He cloned a new dog. Um, oh. And I was just like, oh, well, that's a thing. I was wow. like, I was like, welcome to a brand new world, everybody. <laughs> I, was, I was like, so that's some love. So wow, that is both thrilling and scary. Absolutely. Right. And so uh, I know we're not quite there yet on these things. Uh, what uh, on that note, uh, 
what technology scares you? What technology that you see in the, these days coming up the hair that it's either exciting or so exciting it might be frightening? I think for a long time it was uh, audio and video deep fakes. For a long time, I was very worried about in a world where we already live in a pretty low trust information environment, like what those tools could could do mm. um, to an already like eroded level of trust in society. Like those those are scary. Um, that's probably the thing that I, that has scared me the most in the last few years. I think the other thing I'd probably just say is like black box AI being allowed to sort of run around unsupervised and make decisions where people don't understand what's really happening in the black box. I'm pretty sure like that's already happening. We just don't know it yet. And I think the temptation to sort of let the algos make a bunch of these decisions, whether it's around credit reporting or who you choose for a job, if the decision-making criteria for the algorithm aren't well understood, we're going to end up replicating a lot of the problems we have in society, but turbocharging them by allowing us to make a lot of really unfair or ill-informed decisions at scale, as opposed to making a lot of ill-informed decisions slowly or with or, or at human speed. Yeah, it's, man, the human in the loop, right? That's the thing is, it, especially when it comes to say radiology or driving cars or yeah. any situation where it's great to save time, but at what point do we, it, is it irresponsible to give up control? Yeah. To save time. We could help so many more people, but it would be way worse. It's that whole was a thought experiment that there's a train coming down the tracks. Yep. There is it's gonna murder five people this people way. Or, yep. Yeah, or I gotta flip a switch, but you have to take the action. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of the thing with the AI what we're looking at is like, well, it's gonna save so much time, but I don't have to do anything, or you know, you have to These be, are you have thorny to, questions. They are, they mm -hmm. really are, and we don't it, we don't have the answer. I mean, we could ask Chat GPT, but yeah. you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, these are these. It's 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 an exciting time to be a part of this stuff, and I feel like mm -hmm. you're you. I mean, you are you are at the tip of the hipster spear in San Francisco. Yep. You know, really seeing these things coming out at, at full tilt, which is which is truly impressive. Um, is there? You know, this was an awesome podcast. And by the way, thank you so much. I had uh, I, was, I had to delay the, the meeting. And I was just like to say he is very, very kind and gracious because of this. So I want to I want to acknowledge that it was super cool about it. And so thank you so much for that. I really do appreciate you uh, being flexible with that. And um, now I'd like to say, is there is there anything else you'd like to let people know about before you tell them how to get a hold of you? Um, I will just say this. We are, we try very hard to be an open access firm. So if you're interested in chatting with us at Precursor, you don't need to manufacture an intro through someone else. You can just like come direct to the front door. That's like a really important like operating principle for us. Beautiful. Yeah. So, so if you have an awesome idea, uh, MVP of some kind, you know to reach out to Precursor. And uh, yeah. And with that being said, how do they get a hold of you? What does that look like if they do want to reach out? Oh, you can just come to our website. It's just precursorvc.com. I'm just unimaginably Charles at precursorvc.com, not the world's hardest email address to guess. Um, yeah, those are probably the best two best two ways. Beautiful. All right. Charles, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time coming on the show. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure. And I wish you all the best uh, uh, growing your your pre-seed community into flourishing into beautiful companies. Well, thank you for having us. This is really, this is really a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a beautiful day. Awesome. Take care. You too. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Are you interested in using disruptive technology like ChatGPT, AI, and virtual reality to help your business to generate more revenue and create greater impact? If so, go to heroesofreality.com to take the Heroes Quiz to unlock your potential as a purpose-driven entrepreneur. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the other side.